Hello again and welcome to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. I'm Steve Brine. I'm the MP for Winchester in Hampshire and I'm chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a frontline general practitioner in Litchfield in the Midlands. I'm chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, chair of the National Academy of Social Prescribing and tonight, also of relevance, I happen to also be a trustee of Macmillan Cancer. Now, why is that relevant, Helen? Because as you will see on the photo that we put along the social media post with this episode, we are actually in the same place, which uh, for those who listen to this podcast, we're not always in the same place when we record it. In fact, I think we've only managed that once in our time doing it so far. We haven't. Sometimes we're not even in the same country. Sometimes not in the same country. But we are in the same place. We're, we're in the same room recording this because you are here today for what? Macmillan <laughs> So Macmillan have got an event over, a, a parliamentary event. Get this, it's the parliamentary tug of war, the House of Lords versus the House of Commons, all a fundraising event for Macmillan Cancer, which is going to be hilarious. It's a glorious evening here in Westminster. And um, yeah, just I'm just hoping nobody puts their back out because I'd much rather not be the GP on site if that comes to it tonight. Yeah, well, you know, I I have bad form with uh, tug of war, actually, Helen, in, yeah. in my constituency at the Grattan Festival in Sutton, Scotney one year. They were like, come on, Steve, you do it. And uh, I did. And then I looked like a right fool with a bad back and all that. So yeah, you know, can I, I, I'm just going to watch this evening's proceedings and Good you know plan. to supervise i'm going to supervise what's going on I anyway so, so you're you're here for a parliamentary tug which is good <laughs> uh, it's been said before and commons versus lords who's the favorite i mean who would you say is in pole position i think it's fair to say that the, the to the casual observer who didn't understand the nuance of these things that just looking at the demographic of the house of lords the demographics of the house of commons one would tend to put one's money on the commons but there's a lot more nuance to it than that it's not the entire population of each of the houses and um, there are self-selecting individuals and there are lots of sub battles to be fought in between so i think it's a, it's a really open and i'm looking forward to seeing it and i'm not a betting person and i said to you earlier are you doing the tug of war and you said in these shoes in these shoes and in this frock you are kidding me okay right <laughs> i've promised no <laughs> well look there's so many things to talk about uh, we just say thank you to uh, dr luke evans mp yes. uh, who was our guest on the pod last week and we've had some fantastic feedback and huge numbers of people listening to it he was talking about his body image campaign he was fun wasn't he it was brilliant fun and he was very clear and his campaign is something that's really easy to understand and to get behind so yeah great podcast episode thank you luke we really enjoyed having you on the pod yeah so it was i think it was episode seven last week so if you find that on your podcast platform of choice and when you're there please follow our show which uh, which helps us and you'll then get notifications of when we put a new episode up now there are in my opinion my humble opinion, Helen, there mm-hmm. are two issues right now which just seem to have shot up the news agenda, the political agenda, and everywhere you turn, someone's talking about these things. Yeah. One of them is vaping. Yeah, agreed. The other one is? AI. AI. Absolutely. So let's start with both of them because okay. they both have very clear implications for health and for prevention. So on the AI, mm-hmm. so I once went, he says, dropping names, to the G20 in Argentina. That's very cool. Davies, who was then the chief medical officer. And we did a presentation to the G20 health ministers about um, the whole issue of microbial resistance. So AMR, antimicrobial resistance. And we did a, a demo as to what would happen if there was a major outbreak. I mean, this was a few years before COVID. Um, but anyway, there's been a development in the last few weeks around artificial intelligence and antimicrobial resistance. What is it, Doctor? So, yeah, thanks, Steve. So this is the application of AI to the very thorny issue of how we 
develop new antibiotics that can treat the bugs that are currently resistant to conventional antibiotics. And there are literally thousands and thousands of experimental antibiotics out there. Uh, the problem is, how do you know which ones to take through to the further stages and develop? And so an interesting exercise happened. AI was applied to this list of almost, well, so over six and a half thousand potential compounds, narrowed it down to a list of just over 200 that were could be exciting. They then got tested because that's a much more doable number for the scientists to test. And they found nine or so really interesting ones, one of which looks to be a complete superstar. Now, I'm going to try and pronounce it. I think it's pronounced Abacin. Other pronunciations may be available. Yeah. Um, and this one is highly, highly specific against a very nasty bacteria which is one of the ones that the WHO say is one of the world's big critical threats, i.e. it is so resistant to everything that we have no idea if we'll ever be able to treat people who have it. If this turns out to be a real breakthrough, it could be a game changer. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's something like more than a million people a year are estimated, aren't they, to die from infections that resist treatment with yeah. antibiotics. So, you know, there's often, I remember this from from my time in government, uh, talking about, you know, veterinary prescribing yeah. of antibiotics and in agriculture and agriculture and in human medicine so you know the doctors are always slightly circumspect aren't they in terms of wanting to give out antibiotics and that's not just because they're being mean um that's because they're trying to make sure that they're not overused and exactly. then presumably you grow a resistance to them is that is that a fair summary a very good summary and then we've seen a massive change over the last 30 40 years you know when you and i were kids and went to the gp for an ear infection we'd have just been given antibiotics antibiotics. What we now know is that in those situations, antibiotics may shorten the duration of the illness by 12 hours a day, but actually the exposure to so many antibiotics increases our chances of developing resistance later on. So we then get a much more serious infection that the antibiotics won't work for. So we're far more circumspect now. Of course, there's always that risk. Sepsis has gone up the agenda and people understand that sepsis, life-threatening condition where infection gets out of control and body systems uh, overreact. Um, so there's always a delicate balancing act. But antibiotics have been transformative for healthcare since their inception. The problem is we're running out of options for many infections. Yeah. Even commonly in general practice, we see it, you know, yeah. with multi-resistant urinary tract infections or wounds. And, and previously uh, mentioned Sally Davis, she said former CMO yeah. for England. She's now the government's envoy on antimicrobial resistance. She yeah. said, we're on to a winner. I'm thrilled to see the work we're doing. It will save lives. And, you know, Sally doesn't say anything lightly. She so certainly doesn't. She's hard, she's hard to impress. And so if she's impressed, I'm impressed. She yeah, she was great fun to travel with as well. But that's a whole another. That's a whole another story. <laughs> I bet she was. Come on, <laughs> um, Sally. Come on the pod. The other big one that's flown up the agenda, and we talked about this before, but yeah. I don't apologise for talking about it again. Is this vaping issue? Mm. Now, on the select committee this week, we we're going to have a special one-off session where we're going to get a number of people in one of our topical sessions and talk about this vaping issue. Why is vaping on the news agenda this week, Helen? So we've talked about we, we've talked about the disposable vapes. We've talked about kids and vaping. We've talked about all sorts of elements. What's happened this week is that Ash put out a response um, to the government's calls for what we could do best to improve the vaping situation. They've suggested 
taxing, they all sorts of things about stopping appeal to children. What they haven't done is support a ban on disposable vapes. So um, actual, actual smoking health, just indeed, for those who Indeed, sorry, thanks for explaining. Yeah, and Deborah Arnott, as you may recall. We've had as a guest, yeah. Yeah, and she was great a few weeks ago. Um, and that's caused a bit of consternation because the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health have said, hang on, we want an absolute ban on disposable vapes. They have no use at all. They're the ones that are attractive to children. And so there's a little bit of tension out there today, which is natural. 95% of what they want is exactly the same. But of course, it's the differences that people pick up on. Fundamentally, we want to protect our children and young people from unnecessary harms. Um, what Ash is saying is that there are some vulnerable groups of people, people who've got learning difficulties, people who have got dexterity issues, who find the more sophisticated refillable vapes harder to use and people who are more impoverished and poorer find the disposable vapes are cheaper and so they don't want to take away the option of those people having help and you can see where they're coming from but i also see very much so when the story says children's doctors are calling for a complete ban on disposable vapes that's because children are more likely to radiate towards the cheaper disposable product and if you remember we picked up on that issue that they were giving there were free samples that could be given to kids and um, that was one of those loopholes we said must be cracked down on that that uh, retailers can give free samples of vaping devices to young children. And so, yeah, we want, we don't want children to start vaping. That's the big thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, you can get them for about five quid, can't yeah. you? I mean, it has, it has, I mean, I hear about it in my mailbag as a constituency MP. And I mean, I hear about it as a parent as well. I mean, I have seen letters home on the subject of vaping. And, you know, I sometimes where I'm in the car with my son and he'll say, oh, that's so-and-so, he vapes. You know, it's become a thing that people talk about now in relation to, you know, the, oh, he wears that jacket and he vapes. <laughs> um, so the prime minister said it is ridiculous that vapes were designed and promoted to appeal to children when they were supposed to be used by adults given up smoking. The other side of this story and you know, why vapes just has been a recurring story in the last few weeks is that BBC did an investigation that found unsafe levels of lead, nickel and chromium That's right. yikes, in vapes confiscated from a secondary school, which could end up being inhaled into children's lungs. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not a doctor, not a doctor, but this doesn't sound good, Helen. This is really, really bad. All you know, These are either carcinogens. These are things that could d uh, delay neurodevelopment, so brain development. So particularly when uh, children okay. are vulnerable, lead is the particular one there. We know there's a lot of evidence about it. And it is unbelievable to me that these things are actually the case. Now, these actually are in the illicit vapes. These are not in the regulated ones, which have to comply with a lot with high standards. Uh, these are in the unregulated illicit products. So there is an important difference there. But this was, an in this was a very um, entrepreneurial head teacher who basically went out, confiscated a load of vapes for the kids. Contacted the BBC and said, "What do you want to do? Do you want to test some of these?" And the BBC arranged for the analysis. So it was a really important bit of investigative journalism. And hats off to them. Yeah, and of course we should just be clear: if you're a child at secondary school and you are buying vapes, you you shouldn't be doing so. You know, you're not you're not doing so legally, are you? No. Absolutely. And, uh, and so, so there's an enforcement issue there, isn't there? And mm -hmm. that is following up. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. We'll talk about sex and weather. Excellent. Welcome back, everyone. Well, we promised you sex and weather, and so that's what we're going to give you. Steve, what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about sex. Do you remember Excellent. that? It was it salt and pepper? I think Let's talk about sex, be... baby. Ooh. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stop that. Let's stop that. Moving uh, on. That will be Have you ever done karaoke? I certainly have. Have you done it with me? No. Hmm. 
It's a thing. Yeah. I did karaoke night. So Therese Coffey, who's now Environment Secretary, mm-hmm. um, organises karaoke night in here for the Parliament, some of the, some members of the Parliamentary Party. And I, I'll never forget back in, oh, this must have been early, early in the Cameron years when George Osborne was um, Chancellor and mm-hmm. he did karaoke to Bills. You know that song? I got bills, I got to pay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Anyway. Uh, I actually, but no, there's a good bit of social prescribing in there. You know, singing is good for your soul. It ah, lifts your spirit. Lots of yeah. natural endorphins. It's great. Susie, my wife and I, always say that uh, one day when we have time, like, you know, when when we retire yes. uh, or when I get thrown out, then um, we're going to join a choir. Excellent. Like a rock choir. Oh, that would be fun. Would you like that? That would be really fun. I'd see you in a rock choir. I, I'd love a bit of that. I, mm. I, I was in choirs for donkey's years as a youngster growing well, up. Oh, you're Welsh. Of course, I'm Welsh. 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 Blood. Nice. Um, but, you know, much better in a choir than as a soloist. That's all you need to know, Steve. But but, but uh, it, it really does lift your soul singing. Really. Yes, excellent. And because and it's been hot, I've never had a, a nicer half term weather-wise. You know, shorts all the way. Kids were happy playing in the garden, uh, dog swimming in the river loving it it was great Sounds weather. magical but there are health impacts to it being really hot and uh, what was the weather story that you flagged this week yeah i flagged this one up it was interesting to see we're going to introduce a hot weather alert system you may remember a few weeks ago there was the uh, national emergency alert testing system yes, on, on all text, mobile yeah. phones i have to say my phone didn't ring on the alert emergency system oh. so if it failed the test i'm sure there'll be another test um but actually this is something that a lot of eu countries have already got that when there are severe weather warnings coming out, messages get sent out to the public in the relevant areas, warning them to protect themselves and protect the frail and the vulnerable. If you remember last year, we hit for the first time in the UK 40 centigrade. I mean, that is unbelievable temperatures for us. Certainly it's smashed all records. And at those sort of temperatures, it has a direct severe impact on health for anyone who's vulnerable or frail and young children and pregnant women also, you know, so... So this is through the UK Health Security Agency, yeah. the UKHSA, which Jenny Harries, uh, people remember from the COVID press conferences, leads that organisation. And but what, what's the what's the point of the alerts? I mean, what's it supposed to? What's the call to action that it's going to do then? So the call to action is to take sensible preventative measures for yourself personally. So whether that's increasing your fluid intake, whether that's closing your curtains, doing all the things to keep your house as cool as possible, things that we don't intuitively do in the UK. You know, our houses are designed to keep warm, not to keep cool. Uh, but also it's a call to arms for those of us who are more able-bodied to look out for those who are vulnerable checking in on people particularly those who are isolated I mean, the other thing is to be honest with you steve just looking out for our pets um, at a time like this as you know as ca- caring pet owners in the uk i know the pod's mostly about health prevention but you know health for our pets matters too yeah yeah okay whole society warning so warm weather there's gonna be four alert colors green no risk to health your yellow means that heat could affect the particularly vulnerable uh, over 65 those underlying health condition you're talking about amber means the impact could affect the wider population and red significant risk to life even for healthy people and severe impact across all sectors so yeah okay i mean i, I can i can see that it's important and i can see that you know we've got a understand that last year was the the uk's warmest year yeah. and this century i think we've had 15 of the top 20 warmest years um 10 of them in the past two decades so you know it, it's getting it's getting warmer and those in i remember this from from when i had this particular brief in government those in care homes are particularly vulnerable aren't they they are absolutely and again care homes mostly weren't built uh with keeping cool in mind it was all about keeping warm and cozy because we think about people in the cold so this is a new thing let's see how it goes um i think like all new systems we're going to have to test it out see if it works and refine it over time so they're bound to 
to be a few glitches, but I think I'm really glad to see this coming. I think it's overdue. Yeah. Okay. Well, on the on the sex part, if mm. I may. Um, so gonorrhea and syphilis yes. infections mm, have reached nasty. record levels in England. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked about this before, but we are going to do a sexual health special on we the are. podcast in coming months. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of ours, Kevin Fenton, who uh, some of you will know and who I work with through my, my work on the all-party group on HIV and AIDS, is hoping to come on and talk to us. Um, so if you've got questions and thoughts uh, for the pod surgery in particular about sexual health, email podcast.stevebryan.com or find us on uh, on podcast social media channels, Prevention is a New Cure, and throw them into us. Basically, the story is England is seeing record levels of gonorrhea and syphilis, sexually transmitted infections, following a bit of a dip for obvious reasons during the COVID years. Um, this, How much do you see of this in the surgery, Helen? I mean, obviously, you're not a sexual health clinic, but... So- so in answer that specific question, a modest amount of it, what we get is a lot of questions. I'm going to take you back one second, Steve. You just asked people to send a lot of questions in. Just to be clear, we're not doing a personal advice line on your own sexual health problems. This is about the wider issue. Yeah. Fun though that might be. That would be That's weird. not what the podcast is mm. for, really. You know, I spent six months working in a genitourinary medicine clinic back in the day. Great source of some of my best after-dinner stories, perhaps not for the podcast. But your specific question about as a GP, how much we see of this. A lot of chlamydia we pick up, uh, usually in young women who are in for other investigation, you know, for sort of the standard cervical screening. And gonorrhea is is one of the things you get outbreaks of gonorrhea. Syphilis is much less common. I mean, there were still under about 8,000 cases in the whole of the UK last year. But chlamydia is the really big one, over 200,000 cases. The pattern we've seen, of course, all of the sexually transmitted infections uh, reduced when we were in the lockdown phases, as one would expect. Now, mostly we think that was that the people had genuinely complied with the social distancing issues, but also there will be a certain element that people didn't come forward for infection, infectious disease testing. However, this um, bounce back for one of another descriptor has been quite dramatic in terms of the numbers of cases have risen. And Uh, We do need to watch out for it because the consequences of untreated sexually transmitted infections are really severe in terms of health. Well, yeah, because it can lead to to infertility, right, if you don't get on top of some some of these uh, STIs. I mean, I I guess, you know, yeah, I'm a government MP and and I – and I did hold this brief in government once, but I have to I have to say that, you know, we have made cuts to sexual health services and public yeah. health budgets, and we are we are suffering a little bit of the consequences of that. And we saw that last year when the M pox, the monkeypox outbreak happened and sexual health clinics in some of the most affected areas were unable to provide HIV screening and STI testing because they were maxed out and they just didn't have the capacity to to cope. So you know, we are, we're in a difficult position on this and we're doing a sexual health work stream within a prevention inquiry on the, on the select committee. And, uh, you know, we are, I don't think we're going to be short of advice and short of input on this one. Do you know, in terms of bang for your buck, perhaps that's the wrong uh, metaphor in this moment, but in terms of return on investment, mean. that's what we mean. Um, in terms of return for investment, one pound invested in sexual health services should return at least eight, if not up to 11 pounds in terms of uh, value for money. I mean, it's such a fantastically wise thing to invest in for any society. So please, let's invest more in sexual health services. 
And Steve, hidden within this story, there is a good news story. Go on. And that is the genital wart situation. Right. No, it's not a sentence that I anticipated having this afternoon <laughs> said to me. But the genital wart situation. Go on, do, do, uh, do illuminate me. Let me, me. me tell you the, the, the illumination here. So if you look at the graphs as to what's happened with cases of genital warts, they have been steadily falling. So in 2013, we were talking around 80,000 cases a year, now down to about 25,000 cases a year. And that's plateaued. That hasn't ridden, risen post-pandemic. And that is directly related to the success of the HPV vaccination program. Because the virus that causes gentle warts is the same virus that is associated with cervical cancer, anal cancer, penile cancer. And you, I believe, sir, we have to thank, for, partly thank for it anyway. Yeah, well, we yeah we did extend it to boys, and uh, I'm Hello. very proud of that. I I think that that is a big preventative health measure, and yeah. um, you know, obviously, it'd be a long way down the line where things won't happen that would have happened. Um, and of course, we don't know what we don't know, but uh, yeah, I think that's in but, terms of preventative health measures, I'm pretty proud of that one. We can, but we can see gentle wards quickly already a massive fall in that. And having done my time in geomedicine clinics, it's a pretty distressing problem to have. But treatment is painful. Take and people get recurrences, so to save people ever having the warts is a positive byproduct of the work to prevent all those yeah. gentle cancers. And yeah. so we'll trap all the cancers over time. We're already seeing cervical cancer falling off a cliff. Um, but, you know, how wonderful to be able to prevent things in yeah. such an overt way. Well, look, I mean, preventing sexual health uh, is critical. And uh, I guess life and death, never is there anywhere that's more important than in cancer, which we've talked about so many times on the pod already. Mm. Um, and there's been some quite interesting news on this on that this week, because the biggest conference, the biggest cancer conference in the world has been taking place in the last week or so in Chicago, where I used to live um, in the US. And uh, this is about, or the link to the gallery uh, blood test cancer the trial and uh, you know you may have seen it in the news on the front pages of some of the papers in the last few days actually people really excited about what this promises could you just explain what the gallery trial is and what this particular news story is yeah sure so the conference you're referring to is the american society of oncology that's conference well. so that's it biggest cancer conference in the world as you said uh, they, it does move around um so presented at it was some work done by the people so Grail is the overarching company that own a test called the gallery test. And the gallery test, spelled with a gallery, spelled with an I, includes 50 different cancer genetic risk things. So you take a blood test and you're looking for these 50 different genetic quirks, which are indicative or highly suspicious or high risk for developing different cancers. The massive study, the, the gallery trial, um, is looking at people who have no symptoms at all, who just have a blood test uh, just to see what's there, what they find. And if they find you've got a risk for this, they then go looking to see, have you already got a cancer? And then they're going to follow you up. If you haven't got a cancer already, they're going to follow you up and retest you over time to see if you develop a cancer and how helpful this test has been at picking things up early. So that's ongoing. And clearly that has implications for screening in the future because if it's proven to work, we'll want to roll it out throughout the NHS. So there's a question to come for the future. But they've done a sub-study, a smaller study called the Simplify Study, where they use the same test, but this time on people who turn up for their GP with symptoms. They turn up, GP thinks, hang on, this could be a sign of cancer. I'm going to refer you fast uh, to a cancer pathway to try and rule out cancer. They did the blood test as well. And this has shown that this increases the diagnostic capability and the accuracy. So, so some of the problems, if somebody turns up, for example, with anemia, 
so they're low on blood. Actually, we're not sure if it's a colorectal cancer or if it's lower, lower gut, upper gut, or if it's another cancer that's causing it. Uh, just to be clear, um, there are many, many other causes for anemia for people, but it's one of the things we do think of. Actually, this really helped pinpoint where to focus your energies to diagnose more quickly. However, a word of warning, and there will be scientists jumping up and down shouting at me if I don't say this. The work hadn't been peer reviewed, as I understand it, when this was the press release came out. So it was anxiety. It needs to go through a full peer review process. Um, but certainly it's exciting. And the researchers are high caliber doing a lot of work. My conflict of interest, I'm on an oversight group that is external to all this that provides oversight and clinical critique of the work they do. Um, I'm looking to see what comes to us. Now. Yeah, I mean, I think they said, and it's a great explanation, that they said that it's very much a work in progress. Yeah. I think the research at Oxford University is how they put it. But I mean, basically what it does, it looks for distinct changes in bits of the genetic code that then leak from different cancers, right. which then allow you through that simple draw of blood to spot treatable cancers very early. So, so you know, that's the holy grail, isn't it? To be able to spot them pre-symptom because even at, well, you know, I lost my father to pancreatic cancer at symptom, that yeah. is that is too late yeah. uh, in many 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 cases um obviously in breast it's different um if found at, found early um but you know if the gallery trial fulfills its promise i mean game change i've just contributed to an article actually which will be in the new statesman that later on this week about what are the implications for a publicly funded health service of this coming through um, because obviously, you know, at the moment it's available in the US commercially, uh, it is available controversially here in some commercial settings. But, you know, what are the, the challenge for the politics of this? So, you know, prevention with a political twist um, is how do we fund this? Because we're a victim of our own success in many ways because, you know, we, we have a health service that's free to all and uh, we can't discriminate and we shouldn't discriminate. And this is this is the really important bit about prevention, where where pre the, the cost effectiveness analysis around prevention is so important. And I would argue that it is vital that we do this original research and that others replicate the research so that we are absolutely certain. So if we are going to spend NHS money on rolling this out to everybody, that fairly and equitably, that it really is the right thing. Because it's so easy to get excited in the early phase responses of any trial, when actually the harsh reality when you operationalize something across the general public can be very different. So very exciting. But let's all be a little patient and do this properly. Because if we do it properly, we can get answers that we can uh, robustly defend. Patience is a virtue. Welcome back. Prevention is the new cure. This is our little podcast with Steve Brine and Dr. Helen Stokes Lampard. It's time for this. Pod surgery is open. Dr. Brine and uh, real Dr. Stokes Lampard. We'll see you now. Um, so we've got a couple of things to talk about here. Um, dear Stephen Helen, it's from a GP in Sussex and quite understandably doesn't want their name. The workforce plan. Dot, dot, dot question mark <laughs> okay. you mean the fabled workforce you keep plan? saying the fabled workforce plan yes and i know why you're saying that and i i'm guessing that the questioner's point is is you know wtf is the workforce plan uh answer uh, i don't know um but i think look the, the bottom line is is that it's be, I think it's inching towards being signed off within government i like what we just talked about with the gallery trial i yeah. would rather it was done properly. I would rather we had a prime minister that goes through the detail. Um, NHS England department 
number 10, Treasury, they've all got to be on board. Because if this is not a costed workforce plan with numbers in it, it's going to struggle. But what I would say to you is, Helen, doctor, um, when it does come out, I think it'll be worth waiting for. I really hope you're right, Steve. I mean, I mean, yeah, I joke about it being the fable plan because we've been waiting for it for, what, seven, eight, nine months now. Um, I think the key point of what you said was about it's got to have the numbers with it so it'll have credibility when it lands. But we need something. I think the, the whole concept of a plan that we can all get behind and work with, because it certainly won't be right the first time. It'll need to evolve. It'll need to flex over time. It can be added to. But at least we'll have something which will be considerably better than we've had the last 75 years of the NHS where we haven't had a plan of this nature. So um, I think it's important when it comes out, we all take a breath, read it, read, get out of it what we can, but then look to see how we build on it and work with it and improve it going forward. That's my suspicion. So, you know, I chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. So that's the 24 colleges and faculties that represent every branch of medicine. And they're all itching to see this. Yeah, I bet. We know that there won't be specific numbers about the various medical disciplines. So you they won't. have gynecologists, the more they'll be. Um, there won't need to be an indication of the number of general practitioners because that's such a huge branch. But it will give us an idea of how many more doctors we're likely to need and how many other healthcare professionals, because medicine is this whole orchestra of different professionals that work together in concert, literally, to provide care to patients. So um, I think that's why we're all itching to get an answer to it. So um, I'm with you, the, uh, the anonymous GP from Surrey. Uh, where is it? Please have it too. Sussex. Yeah, Sussex. Yeah. Okay. Right. Your turn. What do you got? Well, I've got one from Fiona or Geranium57, who emailed us about heart disease. Um, really interesting about how can we better educate the public about risks and complications. And she made a really important point that people seem more frightened of cancer than they do of heart disease. And I think there's something quite powerful that the big C yeah. has terrified people more than heart disease. And that's, I don't know, what are your observations on that? Well, it's not neither or. Um, you know, they're both they're both bad. Um, and we gotta tackle both, which is to be fair to the government, um, they're producing at the moment their consultation on the major condition strategy, which will include cancer and will include C V D, cardiovascular disease. Um I think we maybe maybe we do sometimes underplay uh heart disease because um, you know, people think, oh well it's all it's familial and and, and there are not wider environmental factors that, that, that could give you CBD. And indeed, there are, right? Uh, there are many wider in, in environmental factors like air quality, for instance, that impacts on your ability to, to develop heart disease. Am I right there, doctor? You're absolutely right. So, you know, it's environment and genetics. But there are so many things that we can do for ourselves and take control. I mean, in the same way, there are so many things we can do to prevent or reduce our chances of getting cancer that information, sensible, balanced, accessible information is so important. And I think I don't want to terrify people. I think terrifying people about anything is generally very counterproductive. But for me as a healthcare professional, it's about those teachable moments when people come in and something's going wrong. It's how do we make every contact count? Sorry, I'm throwing in all the cliches now. Aren't mm. I? But it is that thing about as a healthcare professional, pressing the button when somebody is, you know, classic one, somebody's been listed for an operation and then you notice they're overweight, they're clearly their exercise tolerance isn't very good. If you optimize those things, they'll do so much better at the operation. If somebody's just had um, an accident, they've had care in hospital, and these few things are picked up, their cholesterol's high, if people can spend a moment and say, by the way, you really need to make some changes now to save yourself problems in future. I think that's something we can all get behind. 
Yeah, amen. Okay, uh, final one from me. Um, so constituent actually said this to me the other day when I when when, when you when I was visiting a hospital when you do the podcast could you talk about the COVID inquiry because obviously it's been in the news a lot. Mm. COVID inquiry starts next week. Um, it's been in the news for I would say all the wrong reasons. Agreed. Just been a hula baloo about Boris's notebooks and. Um, you know, you can all make up your own mind as to to what's gone on there and the, the politics of, of that. What I want to see from the inquiry is a sensible, cerebral, professional look at what happened and how we can do better next time. I don't want a circus. I don't want politics. I just think that we owe that to those who lost their livelihoods, yep. and the families of those that lost their lives. So we on the select committee did an inquiry under its previous chair, Jeremy Hunt, actually coronavirus lessons learned. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we published that in October 21, actually. And the government responded to it in about a, about a year ago, actually. Yeah. Yeah. A year ago this month, the government responded mm-hmm. to it and it contains a, a whole series of recommendations. And I want to see that from the inquiry. And obviously everybody will have their tuppence worth, but my plea to the media would be, don't sensationalise everything. Let it do its work. Let Baroness Hallett do her work. Fair comment? Absolutely fair. I think you've spoken very wisely about it, Steve. Um, and I'm not always complimentary about you, but that, you, I'll give it to you for this one. And, and again, you could argue the COVID inquiry isn't, you know, we're, we're talking about prevention. But if we get an inquiry right, it will help prevent problems of future pandemics. So I think we can we can get away with it. Um you're absolutely right. We owe it. We owe it to the public. We owe it to those who lost their lives. We owe it to those who've been harmed. We owe it to those with long COVID, and we owe it to those who are suffering the consequences of the financial and economic hardships that have been, you know, that have, have emerged. And we owe it to our young people whose education was disrupted. So yeah, there, there was a societal, economic, educational cost. Um, I would urge that people aren't hasty about it. I mean, it's tempting that people want quick answers, but quick answers aren't always the right answers. And it's more important to do this well uh, than to do it fast. Um, And so, again, and I also think for the media, I mean, it's so tempting for them to try and sensationalise tiny little tidbits taken out of of context. But, of course, the harsh reality is all of us were working under exceptional situations and the vast vast majority of people were just trying to do the best they could in an unknown situation yeah. and that and that for ministers too you know uh, yeah. politicians are human beings as well who knew yeah. i mean I, I sort of hope that the the evidence that we did in our select committee report that i just mentioned i mean sort of to give you some of the headlines i mean uk did significantly worse was a quote from our thing in terms of covid desks concluding quote the scale of the early loss requires us to ask why the UK was affected worse than others. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why the inquiry was set up. We praised the success of the vaccine program, which is one of the most effective in Europe, if not the world. And and we said that, you know, recommendations should centre around learning from the pandemic were incorporated into future capability, preparing for similar events um, uh, to help those involved and in charge of delivering in the future and i think if that hopefully that work that we did um one of the things we said as well was you know that the the pandemic planning was too narrowly and inflexibly focused on the flu model yeah you know it was the draft plan 
draft pandemic flu bill that became the draft coronavirus bill um, because that was the number one issue on the government's risk register, uh, which was a flu pandemic. So hopefully the work that we did will feed into the inquiry and, you know, select committees do do good cerebral work. Hopefully that's what the inquiry will be. And what's interesting is subsequent to the work you did is the issue about deaths and the figures of how the UK compared to other countries, of course, have changed over time as we've seen that other countries... um, genuine excess mortality has actually been comparably high to the UK. So it may be that the UK was one of the better countries in terms of the quality of its reporting of the whole public and because of a national health service that is a fairly standardised uniform way of doing things. However, all that will come out in the wash. I was, uh, I noticed John Hopkins University in the USA who kept the COVID trackers for the globe. They shut down or they stopped collecting data at the end of March. And at that point, um, the global death toll was over 6.8 million. There you go. That's why we've got to take it seriously Absolutely. and be serious about it. Anyway, there's a helicopter overhead, which is probably your security arriving for the oh, tug of war, just I to make sure away. that you're safe. Um, and we're going to go and do that now. So I'm just going to say thank you. I'm going to say podcast at stevebryan.com find us on social media prevention is the new cure we want to hear from you your feedback want to hear your questions and your topics suggested for the pod surgery um it's been fun it's nice it's to see you in the same room lovely to see you in person steve take care until next time bye bye